0: this morning we were looking over the order of service and and uh the title of the song uh, does jesus care and and brother aaron said spoiler alert he does he does glad we went ahead and enjoyed the song it's very good well it fits nicely with where we're going in our new series we're going to go ahead and get it started tonight and then we'll you know miss next week and the next but that's okay at least we'll we'll uh, be able to say we got it, a new series started right and um trying to think about you know, the book of Job, I, I enjoyed working through that. Those of you that have been here, then you know that we've been in a series of Job, for, in Job, for about two years, uh, Trusting God in the Trial. And it was the title of the series, Trusting God in the, in the Trial. And so, in thinking about what would be a good follow-up, you know, to uh, Trusting God in the Trial, and so I thought about Countered by Joy, <laughs> countered by joy out of the book of Philippians. So uh, that's where we're going to start here tonight. I'm looking forward to that. And so remain seated. Go ahead and find your place in Philippians in chapter number one. Uh, what book of the New Testament maybe would be a, um, a counterpart or comparable to the book of Job? Well, you know, there, there would be certain passages certainly that would give us a New Testament perspective, New Testament perspective on suffering and going through trials like what we've sung about tonight, what we've heard Brother Yeager sing about as well, and what would maybe be a sequel. So I thought about Job and how that in Job 19, he said, I know my Redeemer liveth, and that I shall see him in the latter day. You remember that? And verses uh, a little bit more to it than just that, but that was basically his heart. And and while uh, Job struggled in the midst of his trial, um, God didn't <laughs> struggle. And um, and so in the New Testament, I think about Paul and some of the suffering and the things that he went through and and yet how that he knew his Redeemer lived because he saw him risen uh, from the dead and said as much, several passages, but 1 Corinthians 9 stands out, have not I seen Christ? He says, uh, risen, the risen Christ and and then in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about seeing the risen Christ. And so I, th- I thought about, you know, the trials. And all you got to do uh, to feel better about how bad things are in your life, just read how bad Paul had it, right? You know what I mean by that? Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, some of the things that came his way, the shipwreck and the beatings and, and uh, the stonings. And I mean, my, what a list. And, and yet, and yet, joy, delight, inward peace, right, Um, inward happiness, true, genuine uh, joy in this man's life. So I'm calling this new series uh, simply this, countered by joy, countered by joy. So the, the verb counter, um, it means this, to meet or answer by an answer in return. To meet or answer, I'm sorry, by another in return. So it may be um, a counter move. You know, if you think about a strategy, there's a move against you, then there's a then you counter move. Um, if it's boxing, it's a counter blow. And so it seems like um, with every difficulty... That came the way of the Apostle Paul, and I realize he's just a man like we are. And by the way, we, uh, you know, we've been in a, in preaching through Acts, and now going back through. Of course, we just finished Ephesians, and so just going through and and preaching or teaching through the books of the uh, the letters of Paul and the order probably in which he wrote them. So we've already covered Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians and and uh, Ephesians and such. So, anyways, now we're coming upon uh, Philippians, so the timing of it just really works very well. But it seems like with all the difficulty that hit Paul over and over, uh, God helped him to respond in joy. God helped him to counter that with joy. There's a lot of other responses that he could have had. Um, And there were times, you know, when he was overwhelmed. I I don't want to make the case other than what it was. There's times he was uh, fearful and times uh, when he thought he was going to uh, die and things that he was overwhelmed about. Uh, but I know that we need God's help when, when in some of those overwhelming circumstances to respond with responses other than retreat and revenge and giving up and anxiety and worry and fear and stress. Are you following me here? Um, that would be our natural response. So how is it that Paul kept coming back at trial, so to speak? How is it he kept coming back at trials with joy? Let's stand and read now in, in Philippians in chapter number one. We're just going to get right into it here tonight and cover, God willing, the first six verses. Um, Some of the most well known verses, perhaps in the New Testament, are in in the book of Philippians. So I look forward to covering many of of them as we we have occasion and in its context. And so we're going to cover the first six tonight. So let's read it together, just follow along as I read Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints. Notice this to all the saints. How many of them were saints? All of them. All right. If you're saved tonight, you're a saint. Now, I'm probably not going to call you Saint Hash or, you know, Saint Marcus, something like that. It's got a good ring to it, though, right? Saint Mark. We could go by short. Uh, If you're saved tonight, biblically, you're a saint. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into it. To all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. So there are saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. And then he, then he says this is very unique to Paul's salutation or his greeting with the bishops and deacons. Right, it's the only place where he mentions them in the, in the greeting. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. And here's why, verse five and then on into verse number six. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day So that'd be the day of their salvation from the first day until now being confident of this very thing that he which began hath begun rather he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he says, I, I'm remembering the very first day and I'm thinking about now, but then I'm looking ahead at how it's going to be and how that God's going to finish his good work in you, uh, which he began in you until the day of Jesus Christ. So our series countered by joy, countered by joy. And tonight, simply this joy, even in suffering, joy, even in suffering. Suffering. May God bless the reading of His Word as you are seated. Then we'll get right to it here tonight with the assurance that Jesus does indeed care. Amen. I am not familiar with this um, author, uh, an American author named Sheldon Van Alken. Um, he was born in nineteen fourteen, passed away nineteen ninety six, as I understand. He's he's best known for a book called "Severe Mercy," written in nineteen seventy seven. He recounts um, his friendship and his wife's friendship with C.S. Lewis and um, Sheldon's conversion to Christianity and even dealing with the tragedy of losing his wife. And and actually, if you know the the, uh, testimony or the biography of C.S. Lewis, you know that he also uh, lost his wife uh, who passed uh, due to being terminally ill. But here's what... um, Sheldon Van Alken said uh, about joy. Listen to this here just a moment. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. The best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. Joy, certainty. In other words, I know what's going to happen to me when I die. Their certainty and their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christians, uh, I'm sorry, the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless and when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths, he says. Now, I know I don't have to take long tonight to establish this great truth about the Apostle Paul. He was a joyful Christian. He was not a joyless Christian. In fact, if you, if you read... Uh, The book of Philippians, and many of you are familiar with it, you've studied it, but for some, this is the very first time they're going to do an in-depth study of the book of Philippians. But if you you read the book of Philippians and you don't notice words like joy and rejoicing, then you fell asleep while you were reading, okay, because it is often there. In fact, the words joy or rejoicing are found 16 times throughout the book. Chapter 1. Verse 4, verse 18, I'm not going to list them all, but it's, it's in every chapter. I mean, it's only four chapters, but, but nonetheless, it is, it is highly concentrated in the, in the sense of having a lot of references to joy, which would be gladness or delight and inward happiness, uh, not based on circumstances or happenings. I know you understand that, but, but nonetheless, just, just a gladness in the Lord. You know, wouldn't the world be um, better off for Christians that had some gladness about them? in their life, and and some Christians that were glad about being saved. Now, with as many references as there are to joy or rejoicing, there's actually one other um, reference or theme. Let let me just refer to it that way. Another theme that runs throughout the book that is actually mentioned more than joy. Now, I'm not going to make the case that joy is not a major theme. In fact, that it's not the theme of the book. I, I believe it is a major theme of the book, but there's actually a greater theme that runs throughout the book that is Paul's cause for joy, but I'm not going to share that with you now. We'll come to it at the end of the message. John Walford wrote many years ago and said this, in a modern world, Overrun by secular thought, unbelief, and materialism. Would you agree that defines our world today? Secular outlook on life, meaning life without God. Um, Unbelief. And that's increasing in our country, isn't it? And materialism. He says, in such a modern world, and too often... uh, satisfied with the unparalleled luxuries of modern life, a letter written by a prisoner in chains may seem at first glance to be irrelevant to our contemporary scene. What could a prisoner in chains tell us about how to enjoy life? Imagine, we get a letter this week from somebody from you know, uh, Lexington, as far as uh, that's incarcerated or Oklahoma County Jail, something like that. And, and they're, they're writing to tell us how to have joy. Locked up. In confinement. But then he goes on to say this. A careful study of the epistle, however, revealing the amazing triumph of the apostle, even though in great suffering, soon re- removes, he says that, that understanding—understanding understanding that this man, though though a prisoner, though in chains, uh, seeing his triumph that he's not defeated—that soon removes the veneer of modern superficiality, because there can be a superficial nature about people's facade of, of happiness and joy in, in life that's not real. It's not sincere. He says it can move, remove that from our present world and brings the reader face to face with the ultimate spiritual values, which satisfy the heart and bring joy and peace in a way that no modern convenience or pleasure could duplicate. For those seeking depth in spiritual things, a real intimacy with Jesus Christ, and a life that counts for eternity, this epistle offers, he says, infinite treasures. Just four chapters. It's pretty power packed. Why did Paul have joy even in the midst of suffering? So, when you begin to study Paul's letters, and one thing that we mentioned as we got into it, even in a Sunday school series, this is a Sunday school lesson many uh, years ago now, is that Paul wrote in a certain format that is known as a Roman letter. All right? Now, when we write a letter, usually we'll, we'll say, dear so-and-so. You know, right now, with Tyler, being in basic training, uh, we're writing a lot of letters, you know, dear Tyler. And then we'll write the content of the, of the letter and then we'll sign at the bottom, you know, the name. But, it, but in, the, in the Greco-Roman world, it was inver- inverted. rather, And so you'd have the sender first, much like it may be in our email, you know, from so-and-so to so-and-so subject line and then the body of it. And so there's a certain way that it was written and some expectations. So you'd have a salutation in terms of the sender and then the recipient and then a greeting and then the body, or sorry, the Thanksgiving section, which sometimes we kind of read over that Thanksgiving section, but I'm here to tell you, friend, it is a very important component to Paul's letters. And, and what you'll find in the, in the Thanksgiving section uh, built in there is gonna be what the whole letter is about. So we really do need to take our time dealing with verses one through 11, which would be the Thanksgiving section here in the book of Philippians. And then you have the body of the letter. Most often that's set off by, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, or I want you to know. And then you have what's known as an ethical instruction section, which basically means this. Based on what the doctrine is, here's how you're supposed to live. All right, so we'll come to that even in the book of Ephesians and chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians in chapter four, and then there's a closing and so forth. So that's what we have here in the book of Philippians. So verses one through 11 is gonna be very important for us to take our time to really establish what Paul is saying to a church that I believe he he dearly loved. Now I believe brother brother Greg, unless God's gonna lead him differently or or he's, he's going a different direction, I believe on Sunday night he's preaching about the church in Philippi and in the book of Acts. So I'm gonna do just a little bit of a, a background there so that we'd understand why did he write this church uh, in Philippi and some of the historical uh, circumstances that were surrounding it because it plays into our understanding of the book very largely, right? So it's going to be very important that we would get that. Now, um, there are some details about it that I don't want to get bogged down in, you know, and anytime you start a study of a new book of the Bible, you run the risk of, of uh, getting into into some of those details, but if you'll just bear with me here, I think it'll help to make better sense as to what's going on at the time of this writing. This is considered one of Paul's um, prison epistles. And so he wrote this obviously while he's in prison. That's, that's, uh, that is not up for debate. Uh, what is debated is, okay, which imprisonment? So I guess that right there just shows you that Paul had some struggles in his life and some difficulty that came his way. If people debate about which prison you were in, then you had a hard time in life. Are you following me here? So whether it was in Ephesus or whether it was in Caesarea or whether it was in Rome, then the fact that you had multiple tells us that you went, you've been through some things. Now, I believe it was in Rome that he wrote this, and there's good internal evidence as to the reasons as to why and the timing of things, but some would, would make a case otherwise, but they're not here. So here we go. We'll just keep moving right along. So here's the historical context of what happened uh, this church in Philippi, which we'll, we'll come in a little bit more of the, the historical background, but they they heard about Paul's imprisonment. So this this would most likely be his first Roman imprisonment. After you know, in the Book of Acts, in chapter number 28, as he's made the journey there to Rome, and he's 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 under house arrest and incarcerated that way. And so it's not it's not the time in which he's going to die when he wrote uh, like Second Timothy, because as you read Philippians, and you see indication that he. He believes he's going to get out, and I believe he did. He's going to get out, and he's going to be maybe even able to visit Philippi. You're following me here? So this will be the first uh, incarcerated time in Rome. And so they hear about Paul's imprisonment. And so what they do, the church in Philippi that's that's located in Macedonia, uh, which was really the first move into Europe as the gospel was moving west, uh, they send a man named Epaphroditus. And they send Epaphroditus to find out, how Paul is doing, and also to encourage Paul. Well, while Epaphroditus is there, he becomes sick, and he is at the point of dying. The church in Philippi hears about his sickness. Now, they're concerned not only about Paul, but also about Epaphroditus. So Paul wants to get, are you following me here? Paul wants to get word back to Philippi that Epaphroditus is doing better, so he's going to send a letter with Epaphroditus, which is what we have. The book of Philippi, the Philippians, rather, sent by Epaphroditus that he is indeed fine. And he also wants to send Timotheus. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. So obviously there's this interchange that's going on here because Paul knew that they would really care about him and his suffering. And it was it was causing them to be concerned about Paul. Uh, and his well-being naturally, so I mean they love the man, they dearly love the man. This is probably about ten years after he had been in Philippi as a church planter uh, that was there, and so he, they're they're concerned about him. he's writing back to them to let to let them basically know this: yes, I'm bound, but the gospel is not bound I'm in change, but the gospel is not now. He also is going to do this. He's going to thank them for the love offering that they sent. I'm telling you, church, this church in Philippi is a spiritually healthy church in many ways. Now, they had some issues. I'm getting to that here in just a moment. Uh, they had some issues, but one thing they had going for them was Paul's commendation that they were a very generous church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he commends the church here of Macedonia, which would be the church of in Philippi, because they had sent, they sent a love offering to him twice while in Thessalonica. And then another time uh, they sent a love offering to him. And now they're sending this one here in Rome. So it's obvious that they have been very generous and very loving towards this man, Paul. But evidently there was some disunity in the church. The reason we know that is because in chapter four in verse number three, he talks about uh, Iodias and Syntyche, these two women, that were having some problems with one another. Evidently, they were having problems with each other in the church and he just calls them flat out in the letter. So how would you like that, right? But that's what's going on. So there's some strife there. What we pick up on from chapter 3 is that there was some doctrinal issues that were creeping in in the form of the judaizers that were coming in, Jews that were saying, listen, if you're going to be right with God, you got to keep the law. And Paul is saying, "Oh no, not at all. You you got you just need a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and so he's going to he's going to deal with that." In addition to those things, so so the the concern for Paul The strife that's evidently between the church, some of the church members, at least two women. And not to say that women usually cause these things. It can also be among men. Can I get an amen right there? That's for sure. And so there's the strife there. And and then there's also the Judaizer situation that's going on. And then in addition to that, there's the looming um, persecution that is on the horizon. All right. So with that formula in mind, those four things alone there's a recipe that could cause you to begin to lose your joy. To begin to lose your joy. Before we go any further, let me ask you this. And I want you to think about this here tonight. What is currently a threat to your joy? What is currently a threat to your joy? I wrote down a few things that could be. It could be the amount of work that you've got to do. Work, school, uh, tis that time of the year for sure, that it could be really just weighing down on somebody. All that you've got to do. Maybe you have a project that's coming up. The amount of work that you have to do, uh, uh, expectation at at your job place that that is coming due, and I mean it's on you. You wake up in the night and it's on your mind. It could be a friend or family member. Maybe somebody that you're concerned about that's, that is on your mind constantly. It could be a sudden change in your health. It could be a prolonged health condition. There are members of our church family that we mention quite uh, often that have a prolonged health concern. It could be the condition of our country just concerned about the condition of our country. Or it could be this. It could be like in the situation with, with the ladies there in, in Philippi. Maybe there's a situation of, of strife that's come between you and somebody else. And, and that would have a way of wearing away at your joy. Friction would have a way at just robbing you, if you allowed it to, of your joy. In fact, I think if you uh, put all these into categories... In fact, one individual did, and I don't remember who it was now, but they said basically this, worry, stress, and fear can rob you of joy. Worry, stress, and fear, can, if you allow them to, can rob you of joy. Worry, worry about what other people think, worry about what's going to happen. Worry, stress, stress about what's going on, and fear can rob you of joy of your joy. It's like something just is over you. It's like something is just looming there. It's like, like you know, something's going to happen and you can, your whole mind can be consumed about that. Um, October, we had an ice storm. Remember that? So we had a good number of tree limbs come down, you know, during that time, like many of you did who had, you know, um, well enough for insurance to get involved. How's that? All right. As far as tree removal and and roof repair and guttering and all all that, I mean, come on, just like, you know, was common here. But after all that was done, I I looked up and I noticed that there's a rather large limb. I I don't think, am I exaggerating, Angie? Okay, thank you. A rather large limb and then another smaller limb about like that. That's a good size small tree that is literally suspended, yet to fall, in the air, hovering <laughs> on a branch, and then another branch. It's really quite complicated to explain. I'd have to show you a picture, but, but I, I've been concerned about that since, oh, November. <laughs> Wondering when, not if, mind you, but rather when this was going to come down. And so then I began to strategize. In fact, I even began to pray (laughs) because it was adjacent to the house. I mean, I thought, okay, here's the smart thing that I did. I got under it. (laughs) I thought, all right, if it comes down, if it comes down like a yard dart, heavy end, you know, it's leaning this way, but if it comes down this way, it's gonna go there and it's gonna hit my neighbor's fence that he paid for, so he'll pay for it again. (laughs) It's his tree anyways. guess that was beside the point, but anyways. <laughs> but then if it goes this way, or if, it, you know, if that limb that's holding it gives way, then it's certainly coming down on or near the house, which we have a rather you know large window right there. So I'm, I'm envisioning, worst case scenario, this thing is coming in the house, in the kitchen, and taking out pretty much the house, or at least that corner of it, you know. So I began to pray. In fact, nearly every day I've prayed, Dear God, please, guide that tree branch. (laughs) I I hope you don't think me strange, but I've been praying, Lord, please help that just fall right where it's supposed to fall, which means what's easiest for me, right? (laughs) So so I'm I'm praying over that, but then I'm also strategizing now, I wonder. In fact, I had somebody come out and they quoted a price. It It was a good price, but I just wasn't willing to pay that. So then I thought, what if you rope it and then you pull it and then then crazy thoughts come into your mind. And then I ruled all of those out and I said, you know, it'd be better if this was just something that happened. An act of God rather than an act of Jason. Are you following what I'm saying here? (laughs) Making this happen. All right. So but that it was just looming there. That's what I'm talking about. The problems of life, the strife the the wor hang, hang on the worry the stress the fear it can just be looming there and and we often think worst case scenario don't we and we think what's going to happen when this falls out and and for the Philippians it was this what's going to happen if Paul dies. Well, what's going to happen if, if we lose our missionary? What's going to happen if Epaphroditus dies? I mean, they were really concerned. In fact, Paul said, listen, he was nigh unto death. In fact, I thought we were going to lose him. And then my, my sorrow was going to be doubled because the loss of him and the, and, and the difficulty of all this that's going on. So that was looming there. And then the Judaizers situation was looming there. I mean, it's, listen, by the way, that's kind of how trials in life work. It's not just one branch. It's not just one trial, but it's multiple trials that are kind of stacked together. And then you have looming there the situation that is ramping up evidently because Paul himself is is incarcerated in Rome by Nero, the wacko. And and you're wondering what in the world is gonna happen as all of this persecution falls out and all that could just weigh on your mind. And it was weighing on their mind. And for you, it's not maybe all those things, but listen, I think things are ramping up even in our own country that we are wondering what's gonna happen if, are you following me? What's going to be the scenario here if all this gives way? What if socialism comes in, or, or what if uh, evil men are, are put in power here? What if the Supreme Court shifts in this direction? What's going to happen there? And all this can kind of create in our minds a sense of worry and fear and stress, and, and you add to that family concerns and church concerns and work concerns, and et cetera, et cetera. And then you got a 10-page paper to do tomorrow morning or 150 pages to read by Friday, and all this is just kind of weighing on you, and then your health give, gives way, or, or the winds of change begin. to to blow. And the next thing you know, you're, you're stressed out. Have I just described anybody's life here? (laughs) Philippi. Paul uh, went there on his second missionary journey. Uh, It's named in honor of Philip II, the father actually of uh, Alexander the Great. Um, Octavian and Mark Anthony defeated Cassius and Brutus there and named it in honor of Philip. So that's, that's the, situa- the situation that's there. But it, but it also was known as this. It was a, it was a Roman colony. They, they gave it that honor. A lot of uh, veterans lived there that were Roman, former Roman soldiers, and so they moved to Philippi. But but here's the, here's the thing I wanted to get across, is that Philippi was like a little Italy. It was like a little Rome. I mean, if you lived in, in Philippi, It was predominantly a Gentile city, in fact, Uh, one man Robert Gramacchi said there was no there was no Jewish synagogue there and I don't know if that's the case or not I've just read what the man said but but when you see Paul coming into town he goes to the riverside where he meets Lydia do you remember that and and so they have a meeting there normally he would go to the synagogue and then you do see in Acts chapter 16 these men being being Jews that's what it was so there's some anti-semitism that was coming in on them there do you do you feel that so there's this anti-semitism that is there and there's this little colony of Rome that's far away from Rome and so what they'd had would they have all the privileges of Rome although they were living far remote from there but they would their lifestyle would reflect more of what was going on in Rome and 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 the way that they would operate would reflect how that things were going on in Rome and so Paul is writing to these believers and he says to them in the midst of these circumstances people that he loved people like Lydia and remember this the Philippian jailer and his household, and, and, and the ladies that he mentioned, and Clement that he mentions, and other men and women that he, he doesn't name, but they, he says this, they've labored with me in the gospel. And he's writing to them, and he's concerned about them, and he wants them to know that, that even in the midst of all of this and what's looming overhead, there's still calls for joy. Paul and Timotheus. Timotheus had been there at least on three occasions, he was getting ready to go for a fourth time. I'm just simply saying that to say this. He knew them. They knew him. He loved them. They loved him. Paul and Timotheus, notice how they refer to themselves, servants, servants that would be slaves, S- servants of Jesus Christ, Here is this man named Paul, who we all would agree, even as an apostle. Now there's sometimes he had to say an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that was because the church there had a a problem with his authority. But the church in in Philippi had no problem with Paul's authority. And so he refers to himself as a servant. Now, wait a minute. Again, I'm I'm trying to kind of go somewhere with this and accomplish a few things at the same time because we know what's coming in the rest of the letter. So Paul, under inspiration always says things very deliberately, and he refers to himself as a servant. And since there's some strife in the church, he knows that they're gonna continue to have strife in the church if one feels more like a leader than the other does. If they don't view themselves as servants, then that is a good mixture for things to go awry. So he says, listen, I want you to know I consider myself to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Chapter two, he's gonna talk about Jesus and he's gonna say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself a servant. You see where he's going with this? So he says, Paul and Timotheus, servants of Jesus Christ. And then he's writing to the saints, which means the ones that are separated unto God's work. Those that are saints, it's the, the ones, hang on, the ones who are of a different order. That's the idea. It's the holy ones because God is holy. Watch this. He's made us holy. Are you following this here tonight? He's writing to these believers who are supposed to be different than the world around them, which is awesome because Paul knows he's writing to people in Philippi who consider themselves to be Roman citizens, even though they're not living in Rome. He's writing though to saints because he does not refer <laughs> He doesn't refer to them as Philippians because their real citizenship is in heaven. And Philippi, their church where they were, where they were living is just a little colony of heaven. In fact, in chapter 1, he's going to refer to their citizenship or their conversation. And also in chapter number 3, and he says, your citizenship or your conversation is in heaven. In other words, he's saying this, the way that you, (laughs) oh mercy, this is pretty powerful to explain. But the way that things operate in heaven is the way they're supposed to be operating in your life. Because just like a Roman citizen living in Philippi, has all the benefits and responsibilities as though living in Italy, the same is true of you even though you're living right here in Philippi because you are the saints that are in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. Well, that changes everything. I'm preaching to you who are the saints that are in Christ Jesus which are at Oklahoma City which means this, we are a colony of heaven. We've got all the privileges of heaven. We, we are living out our future now. But how many of you say, uh, <laughs> I don't think we forget that every now and then. I don't think we act much like citizens of heaven. If you're saved tonight, that's what you are, though. You're a citizen of heaven. Uh, you've already already got your visa. You're ready to go. It's already permission granted. It's done. It's not changing. You don't even have to change your ID about it. It's done. In fact, he changed your ID. How's that? That's even better. He changed your ID. You don't have to, (laughs) you don't even have to go through the DMV. That'll save you some time right there. He just issued it to you. A new name, new future, new relationship with your past, new 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 present power available to you. You are saints in Christ Jesus at Oklahoma City. He's writing to them, and he and he and he says. Uh, as he's writing there, let me, let me pick it up with you there, with the bishops and the deacons. So why, why does he reference that? I mentioned it a minute ago, that he references it here, but he hasn't referenced it in other places. There is at least a slight possibility that prob- the pro- part of the problem could have been with some of the church leadership. Yeah. Now, I don't know that I could make a strong case that way, but notice what he says, with the bishops and deacons. With. So he writes to the saints, which are in Christ Jesus at Philippi, notice the key word here, with the bishops and the deacons, not under the bishops and the deacons, not with the bishops and the deacons at some other location, as though they operate as some kind of a hierarchy and have nothing to do with the church. That's not what a bishop is. A bishop is this, a pastor. And and the pastor needs just as much the grace of God to be saved as any of us do. So while there is structure within God's plan for the local church and headship and leadership, and there's got to be that, and and it is plural here, so maybe they had a pastoral staff. And I, I would imagine, I would understand how things work. There's always a head. I love what Brother Jeff Abel said, anything with two heads is a monster. So there has to be headship. So there would be headship here. Paul's not saying that, but here's what he's saying. Listen, you're just as much equally the recipient of the grace of God as anybody else is, regardless of what their position is. The bishops are there to oversee things and the deacons are to assist and to help. They're there to, to be servants in the church. And so there needs to be a good spirit of harmony and unity that is there. So I believe Paul is setting this up. He's going somewhere with it. And then he says this grace be unto you and peace from God our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's not just scoop by that too quick because you can't have peace if you haven't experienced his grace. The grace of salvation, the grace that empowers you for daily living. But once you've experienced his salvation and you know where you're going to go and you know your, for, your past is forgiven and you've got his grace for daily living, here's what it'll give you, peace even when it's looming over your head. The difficulties of life. He says, I I just, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, every time I think about you. And I I have that same feeling about about you here tonight, as I think about you and I pray for you daily in my office, as as I'm there, I've got the the directory and I just go page by page and I'm praying for families. Uh, Every time I do so, I also give thanks to God for you. So I'm in the O's and then the P's right now, all right? And, and I can just go through there. And in my mind's eye, I'm seeing families and those even here tonight. And what Paul is saying, I'm, I'm just so grateful to God for you. Always in every prayer of mine, verse 4, for you all, making requests with joy. And, and here's why. Because your fellowship, and, and the word fellowship there means this, your partnership, your cooperation, your involvement. Some would say that this relates to their financial giving. And I think it involves that, but I think it's bigger than that. I think he's saying this, you've been involved in the gospel going forward or advancing from day one, from day one. And I look at Southwest Baptist Church and I I thank God tonight because this church historically has been about the gospel going forward. May God help us to stay right there. He says your fellowship in the gospel from the first day, he says, until now. He says, I I know 10 years ago, and isn't this wonderful, that 10 years ago, Paul had joy, and 10 years later, he still had joy. 10 years ago, they had joy, and they still have joy, although it's being threatened. And he's trying to write and to help them with that from the first day until now. But, But here's his confidence, verse six. Being confident of this very thing, Confident, persuaded. I, I'm, I'm persuaded of this. I know this to be true. This very thing that he—that's talking about God. He, which hath begun a good work in you, I, I notice he's not confident in them. He's confident in him. He who began hath begun. Rather, I'm sorry. A good work, notice this, it's not a good work through you. It's a good work in you. When does it begin that good work? The day you trust Christ. He begins a good work in you. That he might do a great work through you, but he begins a good work in you. Hath begun a good work in you, notice this, will perform it. What does that mean? He's going to carry it out. God never starts anything that he can't finish and that he won't finish. God began a good work in you. Now, you're not saved by your works, but but you're saved to work. And God begins a good work in you. How long does he do that work? Until the day of Jesus Christ, which is indicating this. Paul, 10 years ago, preached he's coming soon. Ten years later, he's preaching. He's coming soon. He still believed. 2,000 years later, we can still say with authority, just as much as Paul did then, we say now, Jesus is alive and he's coming again. Amen. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it. You have somebody you're concerned about, Just if they know the Lord is their Savior, just trust that. God will finish the work that He started in them. I'm thankful for that. I'm here as a result of it, and so are you. I told you earlier in the message, in the introductory thoughts, that there's a theme that is mentioned more than what joy is. Maybe you know what it is by now, but here it is. Christ. The name Christ is mentioned 35 times. The name Jesus is mentioned, if my memory serves me right, 21 times. The name Lord is mentioned 15 times. If I'm right on that, you can check me out later. But, but basically this, the theme that is bigger than joy is really what Paul was living for. And the reason, hang on, we're about to tie all this together right here. The reason that Paul could have joy even in suffering is his focus was on Christ. Christ, Christ, the gospel of Christ, Christ, our Lord, Christ Jesus, our Lord. For me to live, Christ. To die is gain. My earnest expectation and my hope, you know, as he's saying in chapter one, and you go to chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, every bit of it, every single chapter is replete with references of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, no wonder It's a book characterized by joy, because if our focus and if your focus is on Christ, your life will be characterized by joy. But quite honestly, it sure is easy to get our attention off of Christ. and get our attention on the looming circumstances that we wonder, when is this going to happen? When I woke up yesterday morning, I saw the flag out in our backyard, and it was headed north in a hurry. Steady, strong, wind from the south. And I said in my heart and mind, today's the day. It's coming down. It's coming down today. About nine o'clock, ten o'clock, somewhere right in there, I was studying for this message. Angie called and said, um. <laughs> when the wife calls and she says something like that, um, something about to come down. She said, because uh, I've been talking to her about it too. And, sure she's been praying as well but she said it's significantly lower than what it was I said all right I can uh, I can come home but you know what there's not one thing I can do about it now <laughs> you know she wasn't really asking me I don't think to come out there and try to guide it <laughs> there wasn't a thing I could do I just I again prayed Lord We've been talking about this. <laughs> Would you please help? And she went to pick up the boys and came home, and it was down. And that, that big log fell maybe three foot away from our corner of our house. I don't know. <laughs> now, the limb that was above, it fell, you know, and bent up the... Newly installed guttering, but it'll be all right. Not a big deal. Rafa's already been by the house. The other one swung down. I was showing Brother Seth because he's all about chainsaws and I, I like chainsaws. I'm, you know, just anyways, I probably shouldn't tell you all this, but. Um, hey, remember where I'm from? It's part of my heritage. Got to claim it. But I kid you not, that other limb, Brother Copes, I mean, it, it just, it's like it was guided. It just swung. And I thought it was weight-bearing on the roof. I thought, oh, man, half of it's got to be in the attic. But it wasn't. It was, when I went up there and I pulled on it, it literally was just like swinging. Now, we didn't keep it there as a swing or something like that. but <laughs> So I just worked it up, got it off, got it cleared. Job's done. It's all up against the fence now. It's done. I'm I'm just sharing that with you because what was looming and causing me daily stress when I allowed it to and worry and fear. I believe, I'm not trying to be weird, but I believe God's over all that. And I believe He did just guided it. Dropped it right there. Took care of it. But I got to tell the rest of the story. <laughs> it's going to get the rain was coming. This was I left a little early from here to go home and take care of it. Five o'clock had about 30 minutes to try to get those things off the roof and find out if there's any damage up there. And uh, man, I must have slept wrong the other night. And I had a crick. In my. You know how bad it is to have tree trouble in a crick? Miserable. <laughs> Terrible. So, on top of that, I flooded the chainsaw. The first time I'd done that, oh man. I was wishing it was an electric one like Brother Andrew's, but. <laughs> <laughs> and Angie, YouTube didn't. She figured out what to do, so that helped a lot too. <laughs> But I have to confess, oh, I was stressed out because I had just this much time. You ever been there? Stresses of life, the worries of life, the fears of life, and it just all culminates. Ah. And what we can do in those moments is get our focus off of Christ, and we panic, we get filled with anxiety, we get filled with stress. But then what I needed to do is just stop and realize how great God was. To do what he did. And if he did that, he'll take care of the rest. And he did. God knows where you are tonight. And he's left you here. On purpose. Because he's already bought and paid for you. A few weeks ago, Angie found a good deal in some suits. We bought them, took them to the alteration shop and left them there. She gave us a ticket, said, come back when they're done. And we did. We had the ticket indicating we'd already paid for those suits. Just left them here for alterations. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has already bought and paid for you. But He's left you here. Because you need some alterations. But if he's already bought the, how ludicrous would it be for us to pay the price for those suits and then never go pick them up? Oh, no. No, no, no. I'll wear one Sunday. Why? Because it's already bought and paid for and we left it there for alterations. I'm telling you, he has bought you with a dear price and he is coming again for us. And even in the midst of our suffering and difficulties, we've got hope in this world and thus can have joy if we'll keep our focus on Christ. Let's stand together. Father, I want to thank you that through the trials of life, you help us to understand who Christ is, and Lord, if you'd help us to keep our focus on Him, the joy that is the byproduct or the result of that. And certainly if we make joy our main focus, then it's elusive because we we can't just go after our own happiness or delight. But Lord, if we make you our delight, and like Paul is going to emphasize in this wonderful letter, that we're to rejoice in you, rejoice in the Lord and even said it a second time, then certainly we struggle there because we often get overwhelmed by our circumstances rather than being focused on the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So help us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name.